probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from harperwharris.com, and joining me again today is... Todd Cameron from outpost31.com, the ultimate The Thing fan site. Awesome. So welcome back again. We're uh, halfway through the, through the week. Cool. Thanks for having me on the show, Harper. Yeah, of course. So um, today we're talking about minute 13 of The Thing, which uh, begins with uh, Copper washing his hands and walking over to the group that's discussing over the, uh, over the dead body of the Norwegian. And it ends with, uh, with McCready talking about or war- warning uh, Copper and Gary about the possibility of a whiteout as they prepare to take off. So this is a, this is a good one where we really get kind of the movement on, on where things are going and what's going to happen, uh, you know, how this is going to affect the rest of the movie. So uh, I guess uh, the first thing I kind of question I had or or thing I noticed, you know, I guess here it's not as clear, but maybe it becomes more clear later. But why Copper is so enthusiastic and ready to go to uh, ready to go to the Norwegian camp. And um, my my guess is it's like, you know, it's kind of a Hippocratic oath thing. He's just he's concerned for their safety and wondering what the hell's going on over there. So, you know, it's either it's either a curiosity thing or, or, you know, as a medical professional feels like he, he owes it to them. Exactly. And in the script and in the novelization, McCready is really, really hesitant to go. And Copper pushes for it further. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. Actually, in the script, it seems like they, uh, again, with Norris being way more aggressive in the script than he is in the movie, Norris is really kind of making fun of, uh, of McCready and just saying, you know, he's, this, he's the drunk and there's no way he's already bunkered down for, the, uh, you know, <laughs> that don't even bother asking him. And that's, that's where we get that whole thing where, where they're asking, where Palmer offers to, to fly, which is, uh, you know, a, such a great moment, too. Yeah. McCready is introduced differently in the, uh, in, in the script and the novelization. And um, they actually did film those sequences. We have some still shots of the cutscenes of Norris going out to get McCready in his shack to, to, you know, ask him to fly to this Norwegian camp. But in the movie, the final cut of the movie here, it's a little differently. They wanted him more involved from the, from the beginning. Yeah, and this is, um, I guess, yeah, in the script, this is where that, when Norris comes to, to get him, that's where the chess scene actually originally is in the script. I thought it was interesting to note, too, that I, I noticed in the, in the script that the... Um, it's not a computer that he's playing chess on. It's like a, it almost sounds kind of futuristic. Like it's a chess board that move, has, that is controlled by a computer and the pieces move on its own. I, I think the computer works a little better. It's a little less distracting maybe um, in the movie. But yeah, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, it's definitely a different, very different introduction here than we get in the script where, where like you say, it is more of a kind of an ensemble thing and, and McCready is not necessarily the the focus as he is in, in the final product. Right, yeah. Yeah, but we do get that great line where Palmer, uh, you know, who literally just, you know, lit up his joint and everything is, uh, is you know, I'll give you a lift. And they're like, you know, no thanks. <laughs> um, Forget it, Palmer. Yeah. Uh, we were wondering who says that line because it's, it, it's uh, we don't see who the character is speaking. And we were figured it must be, it must be uh, Gary who says, uh, he just shoots him down, right? 
Pretty yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking too. It seems like Gary, especially given uh, they've maybe got a little bit of uh, animosity too, given uh, Palmer's kind of making fun of him in the last scene with the uh, talking about his pop gun. Right. So yeah, it does sound like Gary, but uh, yeah, I like that. That line is not in the script. Uh, the um, thanks for thinking about it though. <laughs> that's a, that's one of the great Palmer uh, moments where he definitely really established the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Palmer and Knowles provide a little bit of levity to the movie. They, you know, I, I like the scene. It's not in this minute, but the scene where um, Benning's asked Knowles to turn the music down, mm-hmm. and you can see that he just kind of floats his hand over the dial and doesn't actually turn it down. Yeah, yeah. No. We'll get to that later this week, but yeah, I love that moment. I've always liked that part a lot. Yeah. So uh, they um, they obviously the introductions are a little different here, but I always I, I kind of forget about that shot of um, it's very very quick when they're examining the helicopter and. They note all the uh, the 15 cans of kerosene. Mm-hmm. It's one of those kind of things that just goes by so quick, I always kind of forget about it. But that's a pretty interesting piece of information, too, because that gives us an idea of, you know, what a little bit more of an idea of what they were doing, I guess. And I guess the idea here is that, you know, they were planning on obviously killing the dog, but then they needed something to, to burn it with. But you have to wonder why they necessarily brought so much kerosene. Right. What they were planning to do with that. So that's one of the things you can, you know, kind of speculate about, I guess. Could have explained why the helicopter exploded so quickly and easily when that grenade went off, too. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, well, and, and you know, why they had grenades in the first place is, is right. always a good question to ask. But, yeah, I think that definitely explains that and, and you know, why why the pilot was trying to find the grenade instead of trying to get away because maybe he knew the explosion was going to be much bigger than uh, than just a single grenade and he would not be able to escape. I like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a... Uh, a sound person and I've, I've been a, an editor, a video editor as well in the past. So I, I, I thought it was interesting that this moment has the first uh, whiteout kind of fade in the movie as well. It's something they do a couple times. And I, th- I thought it was interesting too, that uh, Todd Ramsey, the editor talks about uh, that, you know, at the time, I guess, you know, maybe among um, his colleagues and things, uh, he got criticized a lot for using fade outs in the movie, but he, he stands by them a hundred percent. And because he thinks that they, the goal was to try and kind of evoke this very old-fashioned horror movie vibe, and I, I definitely think the the fade-outs and crossfades and everything do kind of add to that kind of atmosphere for sure. It is an, is an older technique, but it works really well here. I agree. I enjoy them in the movie. And there's actually a fade-out on Blair in, in a later scene where it actually freezes on him as well, kind of a fade-freeze yeah, I think they almost do. They uh, they might even do that twice. I think maybe in the the um, where he's looking at the computer. I don't know if it freezes before it fades out too. But yeah, very very kind of old school kind of technique. And I always wonder if that was one of those things where they just didn't have enough footage, or that was an intentional to do the freeze frame as it fades out. To you know who who knows. But yeah, the way the movie's edited is is kind of fascinating. It's it's definitely got a, a very kind of old school horror vibe to it that adds adds a lot of. Um, eeriness and kind of menace to the whole thing yeah it's kind of interesting how the whole thing came together because the more you learn about the movie the more you're kind of blown away by how number one how they pulled this off mm-hmm. and kind of like the, the almost you know when things go wrong something good comes out of it and i think a lot of that in, in the latter third of the film um when the studio was pushing them to, to wrap and there was you know massive budget issues i think that you know when they had to cut scenes like shorten the blair monster down and, and make Nulls just walk away and there's you know we have no explanation of his death that kind of all worked in their favor, you know, kind of that pressure from on Carpenter from the studio to wrap this film and, and literally throw it into theaters kind of worked in his favor. It, it gave us the film we see. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, I mean, you're right. It does um, a lot of those things that, you know, as, as 
big fans of the movie, you know, obviously people would love to see that stuff and see how that would have come out, you know, and in some respects, but, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it definitely adds a lot to the, the kind of mystery and the suspense of the movie. You know, I, I think, especially given looking at that last scene or not the last scene, but, um, near the end when, uh, when Nulls disappears and McCready's yelling down the hall for him, and then suddenly he just realizes nobody's answering back. And, you know, that, that kind of moment of realization when he knows what happened, even though, you know, we don't see it, uh, is, is great. That's one of those great kind of terrifying, quiet moments in the movie. Right. No reply. And it just builds the tension like crazy. Yeah. So yeah, here, here we're really just getting them, uh, getting ready to go and, uh, head out to the Norwegian camp. And McCready is obviously pretty hesitant. We also get in this moment too, some of the hints at what the, what some of the characters do on the camp. So, you know, in the, in the script, it's obviously pretty specific about, you know, what their roles are and, and, you know, what their jobs are, but in the movie, and in a lot of cases, that's not quite as crystal clear, but here we get uh, Bennings talking about what's going on with, uh, with the storm and, and, you know, how, whether McCready could fly out or not. So we kind of established that he's one of the meteorologists on the camp as well, since the, we did not have that scene in the beginning of him and Norris, uh, you know, with the weather balloons that's in the script. So it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. This It's one of those kind of just kind of subtle things. Like it almost seems like anybody could have said that, but the fact that he said it does kind of establish that, that that's what he's here to do. It's kind of interesting in that shot too, because it looks like McCready's coming down from his shack with, uh, you know, he's got a bag of his own that he's carrying and Copper has his kind of like old-fashioned doctor's bag. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like he's coming down from, from his shack, and we've got some pretty good wind, and you can just see the base of snow up there in Stewart in, in December. And that's all real snow in that shot you're looking at, and uh, probably real wind, too. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's uh, it's where they filmed. They, they picked it because it was the snow snowfall capital of the world, right? <laughs> that's correct, yeah. Stewart, B.C. gets an average of 33 feet of snow per winter season. Wow. And that's a combination of the warm Pacific Ocean and the mountains mixed together. The uh, Stewart, the town of Stewart is a port town at sea level. So when you drive from Stewart Hyder, the border towns, and you make it up to the site, it's about a 45-minute drive. Uh, I mean, you've gone up to elevation, and that's where all the snow is. And you get that, that warm, you know, moist air going up the mountainside, mixing with uh, the cold air of the mountains. It makes a ton of snow. There's a beautiful shot in the movie of the only shot of Salmon Glacier. Um, you can actually see the glacier from the Outpost 31 site. It lies just behind the fuel dump off to the south of, of the camp. Mm. And it's covered in this mist, misty, misty, you know, cloud cover that you really wouldn't see on a frigid cold day. Yeah, I mean, the, the location um, of, of the actual set that they built on camp is, is so crucial to the look and feel of the movie. It's, it's hard to even imagine uh, them having shot the whole thing on a set just because it does add so much to the realism and to the, the atmosphere of the movie. I think that I, I read somewhere that they, um, I can't remember who it was, but they had considered a different production designer, somebody who had done a lot of, a lot of really big stuff. They didn't end up going with that person because he w- had plans to do the whole thing on sets. And when they hired John Lloyd, he was uh, very enthusiastic about wanting to go out in the, in the real wilderness and shooting it out there and was, you know, that was that was a big part of his plan on on you know creating the look of the camp and everything. So that definitely adds a lot to the movie. It's a huge part of the kind of character of the film. They started doing location scouting in April of '81, and I believe they started building the actual set of, of Outpost 31 in in late June, early July that summer. And I mean, the camp itself, Outpost 31, has become almost like the character in the movie. Such an ominous, you know, iconic location. Now everyone knows Outpost 31. 
Yeah, just the just the way it's located, you know, and and especially I love, um, you know, as somebody as I mentioned, I've you know done some editing. I really love the fact that the way they established the surrounding geography too, in in that you know obviously it's a whole different place with those those big open snowy vistas are are in Juneau, Alaska, not in um, in Stewart. They did such a great job of kind of establishing those two and, and connecting those two together that you really get a sense of the isolation of the camp as well. It's uh, they did such a fantastic job of the location scouting and and you know it's maybe a lesson to learn for for some modern filmmakers that that's such a, a key thing to do early on in the process and how much shooting on location can um, can change the look and feel of the movie rather than just kind of creating everything on a stage or or you know later in CGI and that kind of thing it's it, it has such an effect on the movie and of course very clever editing. And, and choosing your shots because just to the just to the rear of the camp is literally forest. There's a whole tree line of, you know, green evergreen trees that lie up on on the road, which is literally just behind the camp. Um, they only shot the camp from facing south or southwest. That's it. We really don't see it from any other angle because of the trees, which in Antarctica, of course, we wouldn't have any. Yeah, and with uh, you know, with like I said, clever editing and and also you know just smart cinematography you don't you would never notice that just watching the movie in general you'd never think like oh how can we never see the camp from the other side i mean i i talked about with someone else on and uh some previous minutes about how they did that with the helicopter um when they first started to shoot those scenes they only had the one helicopter and one set of uh decals so you for a while you only see the helicopter from one side because one side had the norwegian decals and the other side had the uh the u.s decals <laughs> yeah so it's um you know, it's one of those things where, you know, this movie was obviously a, a much bigger budget and, and you know, uh, not an independent feature like um, like Carpenter had worked on before, but he definitely brought some of that independent filmmaker sensibility to it, you know, to some of those kind of clever ways they worked around some of the obstacles they had. Yeah, definitely working. I mean, this was a big budget for Carpenter at the time, I believe. You know, I think the entire production, everything in was $15 million. Which, it, which we know it didn't make at the box office. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he came up with some definitely some lot of money-saving techniques on this movie. Uh, a lot of stuff was dumped, a lot of stuff was scrapped, and a lot of things were done in the most affordable way. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about as as we come up on some some scenes that were reshot in and uh, in much cheaper ways that it's and it's you know like we said earlier it's one of those kind of happy accidents where you know some things turned out maybe better than they would have if it hadn't been this very expensive elaborate scene you know that's a good way to describe the movie a happy accident yeah <laughs> yeah just, it, it it just worked yeah it, it it all you know it's one of those things where. You know, filmmaking is always such a collaborative effort, and there's there's so many things that can go wrong, but also there's so many people who are putting all all this effort into making something really good. But you know, all those different viewpoints and different techniques and things, it's always kind of a wonder that something gets made. But especially a movie this ambitious, it's definitely one of those kind of a it's kind of a miracle, I guess. <laughs> you know, I think Carpenter at the time knew the film he'd made, um, the film that we see as fans nowadays. I think he he knew that he'd made a good movie, and I, myself, and almost everyone else, because we, I don't have a clue what happened that summer in 82 when the movie released. Um, there were some big factors, obviously. Um, Universal had released E.T. two weeks prior, and that was dominating the box office. You know, there was a lot of bad blood, I believe, between Carpenter and the studio regarding the budget and, and the wrap date. Mm-hmm. And I think Universal kind of just put it out there in the mass box office that was E.T. at the time and literally buried the thing, you know. Why didn't they sit on it till October? Right. I mean, it seems uh, it's I think I read somewhere that, you know, they they did. They thought that uh, releasing snowy movies in the winter was a bad idea, which seems 
bad, <laughs> obviously backwards, it seems like. But yeah, I mean, it, the studio really just kind of did everything they did they could to not not necessarily actively, you know, make the movie a failure, but definitely they did not push to um, to make it what it could have been. And you know, given the success of Alien just a few years before and and, and things like that, it's it's you know the market could have been ripe for for a movie like the thing. But yeah, given you know, the huge audience reaction to E.T. that, you know, that was one of the first movies that people were like lining up around the block and tickets were sold out like days in advance and things like that. You know, E.T. Uh, had such a negative effect on the on the release of the movie and and just the marketing in general. It doesn't seem like uh, Universal did all they could to, uh, you know, make make the thing a success. Although I have to say the um, the uh, premiere, seeing the pictures and hearing about the premiere, it looks like it would have been really really fun <laughs> for fans of monster movies from what i've seen uh, i was too young to experience anything in 82 but from what i've seen the marketing actually looks pretty decent solid for the movie you know everything that was put out there from the lobby cards to the premiere um to the promotional materials looks pretty solid i think it was seriously audience audience reaction and, and critic critic reaction reception of the movie was was terrible I mean, yeah, we, we've talked about that in, in, in some past episodes that just, yeah, the, the critical reaction was was pretty bad. And um, and it's such, such a shame, too, because it sounds like it had such a such an impact on Carpenter, who, like you said, you know, really believed he was making something great, um, which obviously he was. Now, now it's, you know, pretty universally agreed. This is one of the you know greatest horror movies ever made. But yeah, at the time, it was it was really panned by the critics. And, you know, I think especially maybe hurtful to to John Carpenter was to hear that some people involved with the original thing from another world really did not like the movie. Right. Yeah. He kind of got it from all fronts. He got it from the audience. He got it from the critics. He got it from the cast and crew of the 51 film, which was only a 30 year old movie at that point. Mm -hmm. They just slammed it. I mean, I've read, I'm sure you've read some of the reviews as well, but the bylines were just like, Oh my God, am I even reading this correctly? Like what were we watching the same movie? You know, what happened? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal, and yeah, it is it is shocking because, you know, it's one of those things where like even the you know kind of genre critics and things were not not much of a fan, and not not you know there were obviously people who didn't like the the gore and the effects and things like that, but I think the ambiguity of the ending that kind of comes along with it was just something that audiences didn't really latch onto. So it was something that was kind of uh, you know destined to become a cult favorite, but not a not a success in its time, unfortunately. The thing hits on every cylinder under the definition of a cult film, um, making it possibly one of the, the largest and truest cult films of all time. Things couldn't have gone better for it from the failure at the box office to the critic reaction to the fan base and following it has today. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it is kind of th- this movie and, and, you know, something maybe like uh, Evil Dead or Eraserhead definitely kind of top that list of, of movies that were. Uh, destined for for uh, all kinds of different interesting reasons, but destined to become, you know, movies that 20, 30 years later became classics to, uh, to a much wider audience than they got when they first came out. So I'm glad that it has now. Uh, it's, it, you know, it, it may be a very different, uh, it would be a very different horror landscape if the thing had been as big of a success uh, in 82 as it is now. It might be, it's interesting to think about, but I'm glad that it's obviously gotten its due at this point. So. I think that'll probably wrap up minute 13. Uh, did you have anything else to uh, to mention? No, I think we got it covered pretty good there, Harper. Cool. So that will uh, wrap us up for minute 13. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. 
There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out.